The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. This is Steve Worlands, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by an old friend, John Pomfret, who a longtime journalist, China scholar, and now author of a new book, The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom. John, you're a journalist. What made you write a 742-page history of U.S.-China relations? So I, I wanted to tell the story of us in China. And I had my first book I wrote about trying to figure out a way to write about the story of sort of red China, if you will, the China of Mao, and putting it together with the China of today. Because I felt that often when we wrote about the China of today as journalists, we forgot the China of of Mao. And using my classmates, I tried to unite those two Chinas in a way. And as I did that, and over the course of my, my own personal interactions with China, I also felt that there were a lot of shadows in my views of China as an American as well. And so I wanted to go back and look at what those shadows were, and I also felt that among my, chi- my Chinese friends there were lots of shadows too about their views of the United States that were born much earlier than 19, the early 1970s when we began our re-engagement with China. And it was that curiosity that drove me into this kind of remarkable journey, a six-year project of trying to figure out kind of the source of some of our ideas about each other, uh, each other and then the stories of of our interactions. And the theme of it, you have this recurrent theme of kind of almost sleeping in the same bed and de- dreaming different dreams, kind right. of. Tell, uh, tell me about so it. So the sense I, I got from looking at the, sort of the, 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 the spasmodic quality of the relationship is that it starts with this huge expectations that we both have had for each other. So the Americans thought that the Chinese were going to solve the U.S. economy problem, economic problems. The Chinese looked to the United States to solve their difficulties in dealing with the British and with the French. The, in, You're talking about very hundreds of years. These are hundreds of years ago. And this sense of huge expectations that both of us have had with the other one have, have almost always resulted in crashing disappointment. When you know, the China market didn't turn out to be as big as the Americans thought it would be, or the Americans didn't help the Chinese with their battles with the British, the French, the Russians, or the Japanese. And if you, if you define insanity as doing the same thing twice and expecting different results, that's kind of been, in a way, the pulsation of the relationship, because invariably, once you hit a trough in China with the Chinese, and once they hit a trough with us, invariably, we go back to hoping against hope that something good is going to happen again in the near, in the near future. And it was that cycle that I found to be, be one of the fascinating things about the relationship. That it just, over these 200 and, what is it, 50 years? Now 50 almost years. Yeah. It keeps on coming back. Now, obviously, clearly, we're in a trough right now. You think we are? Yes. Why? I think that on the American side, there's an enormous... Well, I think the the basic American bet in the expectation that the United States government and many Americans had in their 
interaction with China from the 1970s on was that as we opened our markets and our society and our sort of hearts, if you will, to the Chinese, they would become more and more like us. And I don't think that bet has played out that way. And I think there's a lot of disappointment uh, and disenchantment that the Chinese haven't followed. More like us, as opposed to simply have better lives, have be freer to associate. In other words, you live there kind of when I live there. Right. Um, I started living there in 79. I think you came shortly thereafter. Right. right. China is a totally different place right, exactly. from 1979, right, and a much better place. Oh, oh, by far. For no, I, I, I mean, I, it may not be an American democracy, but right. it is an enormously better place. I, I agree completely. But I think that the this is not sort of my personal feeling about the direction, but. Americans were told that, for example, with the extension to WTO, that China, this was the beginning of China's march to freedom. Uh, Americans were told when China was given MFN uh, by the Carter administration that this was the beginning of the seeds of democracy in China. I mean, this is how the relationship has been framed by many of the people in Washington who have explained the relationship to the American people. Did you ever believe that as someone who lived in China? No, I didn't believe it as someone who lived right. in China. But, but, but I, you know, I'm relatively unusual in that I've spent 20 years of, my, of the last 40 some odd years living in China. So I didn't really think that that's the way it was going to turn out, but this was how it was framed. I think Americans, were, in many cases, were led to expect that that's, that's what, what, what was going to happen, and it hasn't turned out like that. And I think that, that among policymakers, there's also significant frustration that as China gained power, it would step, quote unquote, step up. You can talk about it in terms of being a responsible stakeholder, which is something that, what, that, that Under Secretary of State Robert Zellick asked the Chinese. But I'm glad you cited that that was at the National Committee dinner. I, okay. I, I was pleased that that cited said at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations dinner, Sec- Secretary Zellick said the following. Right. I, your characterization that it was wishful thinking as opposed to true, I found um, inaccurate. Mm-hmm. I think his, uh, in fact, I, I underlined that, that portion of the book. Um, let me see if I can find it. But... I don't think it was wishful thinking. I think it was a fairly accurate view of where the U.S.-China relationship was and where China was. Hmm. At the time. At the time, yeah. I also go back to the responsible stakeholder kind of policy. In other words, get China to be more involved in the international system is the right policy Mm -hmm. that, you know, realistic people in Washington should be be following. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, somehow I didn't write the page number, but I found the book. It was interesting. Was the book controversial? Are there, I, I I was looking at a website, but not at a website. At one of the my uh, various uh, listservs I'm on, and mm-hmm. there was criticism of it. Mm-hmm. By was it controversial? Not particularly. The reviews have all been relatively generous. Um, some reviews have actually taken me to task for being too soft on the Chinese. Because I found, in terms of recent history, um, I found it to some degree uh, a little one-sided, like on, on the employment issue, mm-hmm. how many jobs have been lost to, mm-hmm. to, um, uh, to China. You, cite the, you only cite one source, which is the Economic Policy Institute. Mm-hmm. That's not generally viewed as a credible 
source. Mm -hmm. It's viewed as one that has tended to overstate the, the jobs lost. It doesn't really deal with automation and technology, which you then go on and you say, of course, this is not the sole source, right. but you don't kind of, you don't give the other side. Similarly, on cyber, um, you talk about after the Obama-Shi agreement on cyber, you quote Mandiant. Mm -hmm. And you say, uh, you know, nothing changed. Mm -hmm. Well, you can go to eight other sources, mm -hmm. including people in the cyber and say there was a precipitous drop of Chinese hacking of U.S. businesses. So I kept, was that inadvertent? Was that? So on Mandy, I, I, on, on the cyber issue, it was inadvertent because you have to understand that I would, I'm, and th that part I'm writing up against a very hard deadline. Yeah. And Mandy, it came out very quickly. But the subsequent talk that it looks like industrial espionage via cyber has fallen off came after the book was already going to the printer. So I, I, I you know, take that criticism uh, to heart. But, but that was just also the fact, I mean, you know, the age of Donald Trump, I, couldn't, I could barely even get that in the book. We, I, the book doesn't even end with his election. So... Right. Yeah. You talk about the campaign, yeah. but, but not the election. But on, on the employment issue, um, back to the, the Trump campaign, I think that that is a, still a topic of relatively serious debate as to how many jobs were lost because of uh, both Chinese competition, but also significant amounts of Chinese currency manipulation, which did happen following their accession to WTO, probably up to 2007. And right. there are a series of, of very serious reports now that have gone back and looked at the subject and said, well, we really actually did significantly underestimate the shock to the global manufacturing system and also specifically to the American manufacturing to, uh, mm -hmm. that, that, that came about as a result of China's rise. But you, for instance, talk about a loss of jobs in the textile industry. And you say from 1973 to, you know, to, to now, uh, this enormous, basically, the textile industry has disappeared. Now, of course, those of us who worked in the textile industry know those jobs first went to Taiwan, South Korea, first went to Japan, then Taiwan, mm -hmm. South Korea, Southeast Asia, and finally China. And now they're going to Bangladesh. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, did you kind of talk about that? Some, I mean, I read... 98% of it, mm -hmm. I didn't see you discussing those aspects. All right. Well, yeah, perhaps not. But, I mean, I think but part of the whole idea of writing about this point is to, to talk about how China was framed in terms of its the discussion about China in the United States. And that, I mean, Taiwan wasn't blamed for it. And China also being the largest, in the end, manufacturer at the time of textiles, um, sucked in a huge amount of employment. So yes, the industry was beginning to collapse in the United States due to automation to other forces, which I, I do note in the book. Mm -hmm. but, but you do see China bringing this into its, you know, bringing this industry to itself. So um, I think that ultimately I was, I was fair to China on, on these fronts. Mm -hmm. I mean, it did take the jobs. I mean, yes, you could say maybe, I mean, there's no way that... I would argue it took them from, from South Korea, Taiwan, originally from Japan to some degree Southeast Asia, that very, very few of those jobs moved from the United States to China. Okay. 
Um, yes, do they ultimately end up in China? Just as you correctly point out, mm. they're now they're now moving to, to Bangladesh, Bangladesh yeah. but they didn't come. And the idea, see, I guess, I, I see everything in the context of the last few days, because the narrative of what is going on is is probably not accurate. Mm. Um, and one can say that's what people in the United States see it as, but I think the responsibility of, of certainly the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I would argue any journalist, is mm -hmm. to say what actually is happening. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of lessons are there from the book that would apply to U.S. policy today? Today, well, that's that's a that's a pretty good question. I my sense is that, and you might disagree. It seems that you would disagree with me, but I think that. That the reciprocity in the relationship that I think is the, uh, a basis for any healthy relationship uh, has not been there. And I think that regardless of which party uh, had won the, this, the current election, that neither a Clinton nor a Trump, clearly nor a Trump, but neither a Clinton would want to keep the relationship going on the, in the same direction that it was going. It was felt to be, and I think throughout Washington, throughout whether, whether policy-making circles in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, that it was not a sustainable relationship. There is, is a very clear perception, and you might say it's a false perception, but a perception that China has played the United States. Uh, specifically on trade, but also on issues surrounding uh, North Korea, uh, and perhaps even on issues in the South China Sea. And those three parts of the relationship um, have made it difficult for the, the, you know, it to be continued along the current trajectory. And so um, I don't think there's any other solution other than engagement. Uh, you cannot walk away from China. It is too big to fail. And the relationship between the United States and China is too big to fail. But I think the idea that uh, with a little tweaking around the edges, um, uh, things are going to get a lot better uh, is, is difficult to, to, to really to make that argument. I, if you look at, for example, what people like Jeffrey Bader have written recently, saying that it's time for China to step up uh, on trade, on North Korea, on other areas. Um, I look at that, and I look at that more as a plea than anything else. And I, and I look at that to be very similar in a way to what Bob Zelig said uh, a decade ago. I don't think China was where Bob Zelig wanted it to be back then. It was doing nothing. Well, actually, it, it only moved on North Korea when George Bush threatened to bomb, George W. Bush threatened to bomb North Korea. And then it moved very slowly, and it, then it hasn't really done much on North Korea. And you, know, you can say, yes, the Chinese have been involved in, in, in cooperating with the United States on sanctions on North Korea. But the reality is that the livelihood loophole in the UN sanctions means the Chinese, as long as they determine that anything is within the sort of follows under the category of with the livelihood of the North Koreans, they can give it to the North Koreans. And oil is not even mentioned as a sanction issue. So the Chinese have written the sanction rules in order that the, to, to ensure that they can keep the North Korean regime on life support while it continues to you know work on its ICBM and its and its nuclear warhead. Um, that's really not being a responsible stakeholder because this is indirect. This this is a core interest of the United States. And if we are supposedly going to be uh, res uh, respecting China's core interests, then China must turn around and do the same for the United States. I don't really think that that's happened. And so I think that some tactics need, or stra a new strategy need to be adopted in order to right the balance of the relationship. 
and to and to and to to work to fight the impression that the Chinese are playing the United States, and that's a difficult thing to 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 do. But I think that that and and if and if you look at what Trump's doing, well, you could disagree, but I think it comes from a sense among all his advisors, including our friends within the administration, that we've been being played. This has given you a flavor of what John's new book, The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, will teach you. It is a wonderful read. And John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.